Welcome to Derbyshire Talks, in association with Elastic FM Community Media. In this podcast, we will be interviewing some of the best known and most influential people in Derbyshire. We'll be covering subjects and sharing information that seeks to inform, educate, entertain and to inspire residents of our beautiful county. You are listening to Derbyshire Talks with your host, David Lilly. In the first of our Derbyshire Talk series, we are privileged to enjoy an hour's worth of time with one of the most important public service executives in the county of Derbyshire. Now, even in normal non-COVID-19 times, I don't think too many of us would question the importance or the value of the role of our emergency services, the NHS, the Fire Brigade, the Army, and our local police forces. But one fact that is apparent is it seems very few people understand how local policing works, and that as a resident of Derbyshire, you have a voice. You have an opportunity to share your thoughts, ideas and concerns and you can ultimately play a part in influencing the service that the Derbyshire Police Force provides us. The research and the relatively small number of people who turned out to vote in the last Police and Crime Commissioner elections of 2016 proves there's still a big communication job to do in ensuring that local people understand how they can influence local policing. In this podcast, I asked what the role of Crime Commissioner is, the benefits the role provides to our community, how efficiently the Derbyshire Police Force is operating and how it's measured. I don't mind admitting that the interview warmed my heart a little by some of the work that is overseen by the Police and Crime Commissioner role. I commenced my interview with Derbyshire's Police and Crime Commissioner, Harjil Dinza, by asking him to share his background before he took on the role. So tell us about your background before you became Police and Crime Commissioner for Derbyshire. Before I became Police and Crime Commissioner, I was the Deputy Police and Crime Commissioner, appointed by the first Police and Crime Commissioner. So uh, that was from 2013. So it's something that I was already knowing what the role was about. Prior to that, I spent 30 years working in the criminal justice field as a, I'm a qualified probation officer, so a social worker, and I've worked in London, in Derbyshire, and uh, the majority of my time in Nottinghamshire as a, mostly as a manager, middle manager, senior probation officer, and then as a, as a strategic manager. So I've got a lot of uh, experience around the criminal justice system, working with offenders and uh, victims and so on and so forth. And I'm also a local politician. Since 1993, I've represented Derby City, different parts of Derby City on the county council first, and then when it became a unitary uh, Derby City Council uh, from uh, 1996 onward. So one of the reasons, Hargel, I wanted to do this interview based on my own research, and interestingly, my father was a policeman of 30 years in Derbyshire, so you'd have thought that I would have a huge awareness. I was, of course, aware of the police and crime commissioners, but... My desktop research and some of the people that I spoke to made me realise that there isn't huge awareness of the role that you occupy and other police and crime commissioners. What was the background to the introduction of these roles back in 2012? Okay, I mean, I think what happened, the government at the time, and David Cameron was the Prime Minister, came to the view that uh, the police authorities that were the scrutiny of governors for policing uh, in England and Wales, were not well known to the public. They were faceless uh, committee structure, and nobody really knew who to go to. So the uh, rationale was to replace a 17-member committee made up of elected uh, representatives from local and county council, the Unity City Council and County Council and Justice of the Peace, with an elected individual who is voted in by the people and can be voted out by the people, and they know who to hold to account and communicate with. And that's how, and it's an American-based version, really, of a sort of elected person overseeing uh, running crime and community safety issues. And that's how, and there was a big debate in Parliament. I think at the time, the Labour and the Liberal Democrat parties were not supportive of this change. And so the actual legislation being laid got delayed, so and the elections were put back from May to November 2012, and um, and from then on, uh, police and crime commissioners came into being. Okay, that's really interesting background. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned earlier on about some of your political involvement. How much political influence would you say is involved in the police and crime commissioners? Or, in other words. Do police and crime commissioners all tend to be associated with one of the main political parties or one of the political parties? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, In in the first set of elections, which were in November 2012, 
there was a real, well, the, the public weren't really aware of what was going on. Neither were many of the political parties. They were a bit apathetic, really, about what this is all about. And it didn't really catch on that well. And in that first term, there were people who stood as independents and people who stood uh, on uh, with party support, part, political party support. And in the first term, there were an equal mixture of a third independents a third, about a third conservative and third Labour Party members. It soon became, as, as the, the political parties and the organisation structure became more uh, aware, they sort of, in the second term, there was a bit more interest. And so it's always difficult for an individual to stand as an independent. Number one, you have to put a £5,000 deposit or a surety that, you know, if you do not get a certain percentage of vote, you will pay that in order to not have anybody and everybody standing. Yeah. And secondly, you do have to have a big structure, infrastructure and support and resource to make communication to every member who can vote. Unlike parliamentary elections, there is no free message given about the candidates to the constituents who are voting. Mm. It's all left to the responsibilities and the powers and resources of individual candidates to communicate to the public. If you have financial resources, you can do it. Or if you have organizational resources, you can do it. And of course, political parties are better placed to reach out, do the delivering, have people who are volunteers who will campaign to get the message out, leaflets and so on and so forth. And so in this second term, the predominantly is the conservative and labor peace, peace and crime commissioners that have been elected. There are still about three or four, five independent police and crime commissioners and uh, two from Plaid Cymru in Wales, who, who were not in the running in the first term, but they obviously wanted to get involved and they had the organisational structure in Wales to um, have candidates and then have them elected. That's fascinating, isn't it? So I guess if I were to sort of try and reposition what you've just said, the way I'm hearing it, at least, Harjel, is that if you were to stand for election, it's almost you need a platform on which to be able to communicate your policies and what you intend to do to showcase your values, etc. And without that, it's very difficult. And I actually think it makes complete sense to to put a £5,000 essentially application fee because otherwise you probably would get people standing from left right and center wouldn't you so that's kind of a a kind of a filter so thank you for sharing that the the next thing i guess is in terms of the qualifications of police and crime commissioners is there a criteria that's actually set so let's say someone came along and they did have five thousand pounds and they did have a platform on which to market themselves let's say for example they're very social media savvy what other cv curriculum vitae would that person need to have to be able to be eligible let's say to stand first of all i think it's probably best to say who can't stand yeah because that then allows you to who can stand so it can't be a serving police officer or a member of the police staff, quite rightly, because you know, they'll be actually employees. It can't be a sitting um, MP, member of parliament. Yeah. Can't be a member of the office of a police and crime commissioner, any civil servant who's working in a, an office where the, once the police and crime commissioner elected. They must, so that's what they can't be. And the other only criteria is that they must have an address in the police force area that they want to stand in, and they can't have a criminal record. Good. I was hoping you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are the, those are the criteria for um, being eligible to stand as a police and crime chef. Now, I've done some research on your good self and have been impressed by your work. And but what I'd love to ask is that I'm going to term it a manifesto because, of course, in a general election to elect the government, the parties put out what is known as a, a manifesto, which contains all of the things that the party says that they're going to do and purports that they're going to be measured against that. How did you sort of get elected in terms of putting out? Is is Was it a manifesto that you put out to get elected? Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, it wasn't a formalised manifesto, but it was a, my my campaign was saying, this is what I would be doing if I was elected as a police and crime commissioner. And if you vote for me, this is what you will get. And to do that, I had to look at what were the roles and responsibilities of a police and crime commissioner understand those and sort of say that I would obviously do those. But then actually understand what I knew about policing, about community safety, about what what I felt that the public would want from a police and crime commission and a police force. Mm. And I put that forward. 
And I, I remember, uh, if I don't recall, most other things, most candidates put in were probably similar on the basis that they had the same understanding of what was required of the job from the, uh, the criteria for the role of a police and crime commissioner. And the one thing that I did, which probably was different to the other candidates, I did say that I would be against privatisation of policing. And that was something that stood me out from the other candidates. Well, everybody said they would fight crime, they would protect vulnerable communities, yeah. and that they, you know, um, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, criminality and victims' work is all important. And uh, so, you know, but you have to think about what you what your values are, where the uh, your party stands as well, but also look at the criteria and say, well, and, and your own feeling of what the people would want. So that, that's what I used to set my manifesto, if you like, yeah. and say what you would get if you elected me as a police and crime commissioner. And I think the other important part was about knowing what is required for the job and what, what experience you've got. So I did make sure I communicated what my experience was and working 30 years in the criminal justice field, understanding how offenders offend and what you need to do to rehabilitate them. They were all bits that I put into my my resume, really, to say why I would make a good candidate. Absolutely. And having read a little bit about your background and your CV, I can see that you are perfectly qualified for the for the role that you occupied. Now, in terms of the voting process, people are going to be listening to this and uh, their eyes are going to be open to the realities of, of this role and what that consists of. When it comes to time to vote again, firstly, how do people get made aware of when the vote is taking place and how can they understand and research who the candidates are? I mean, this is really an interesting point. And it's something that's been lobbied by the Electoral Commission and by police and crime commissioners. We have to use our own resources to get the message out to the public. Of course, people will be made aware of the fact that there's an election. But after that, it's really up to the candidates to get the message out. And that, that is a, that's really a difficult thing. And it, it depends on your organisation, as we said before. Political parties have infrastructures which they can use, the volunteers and the, and the resources. And, but you have to do it yourself. You have to make sure you get something through the door of every household in the county. We are over a million population in Derbyshire. It's a large geographic area. And we're talking about something like 400,000 properties. So you have Huge. to have the to do that. And the message. And then, of course, now social media is an important factor. Yeah. You've got to reach out through using any social media you can and try to get a profile and an interest. So, you know, so you have to sort of use your own devices. And we don't have the same facility that members of parliament, when they stand for election, they are allowed one free post uh, yeah. to be delivered to every household. And that makes it easier for people to be made aware. Mm. Otherwise, you you are at the, um, at the at the resources of the candidates of how well they can reach you to say, look, there's an election. I am a candidate. Please vote for me. Yeah. Uh, Hardio, one of the reasons that I really was passionate about doing this interview is, as you know, Elastic FM is a community media organisation. We've been granted our FM licence. We hope to be on FM this year. We've been broadcasting on the internet and obviously through podcasts for 10 years. So this is a great opportunity for people like you to actually connect with the community and for us to try and put a layperson's term positioning on what the role's all about. So when it comes to the actual vote itself, is it just like on election day, you go somewhere and you put a tick in the box for the person that you want to vote for? Yeah, um, the polling stations are the same as for any other election, local and general. Uh, it's probably closer to a local election than a general election uh, because of the interest. You may know that in the first election, there was only about 11% of the population voted yeah. because they weren't really aware of it. The second time, the interest was a bit more, about 15 16% on average of the electorate actually voted. And uh, we're hoping that's going to change. But when you go to vote, the process is of voting is the same. You get a ballot paper, yeah. but it's not, it's not first past the post. The actual it's, a, it's the it's called the supplementary vote system. Yeah, you you're on the ballot paper. You're allowed two choices. Your first choice of who you want to be the police uh, police advisor commissioner, and your second choice. And the idea is that if there's more than two candidates, they will be their votes will be counted. And then if the main the top candidate has not got fifty percent plus one of the votes, they will look at the lower candidate 
if there's two, three, or four, but say, say for instance, there's only one, yeah. their votes, their second preference votes will be allocated to the, the top two candidates or the top three candidates. And it will continue like that until there's only two candidates left with votes. Yeah. And then one would have more than the other, and the, the one with the more votes wins. So it's that supplementary vote system of voting as opposed to first past the post. And how do you feel about that? How fair do you feel that is? How reflective of what's needed do you feel that is? I mean, I, th- I think um, that's a debate that's happening in the country as a whole. You know, we, we've stuck with this first-past-the-post system for the general elections and local elections, but it's been a proportional uh, voting system for European elections and, and this, this supplementary vote system for peace and crime commissioners. Some people would say that it gives a fairer reflection of, of um, all communities being represented rather than just uh, the, you know, the first past the post. You either get you're a winner or, or not, you're nowhere to be yeah. seen. So it's a debate that I'm, I'm not fully fighting one way or the other because uh, this way, you can only have one candidate at the end. So it does make it a longer process mm. with the second preference vote yeah. dictating. And there have been occasions where somebody got the largest votes, but they didn't succeed because they couldn't get the 50% one. And the other votes um, went against to get somebody with a lower first preference yeah. that should be behind the Crime Commission. So it's a, it's a difficult one. Yeah. How many people were you up against in the last election, Argel? Um, there were four. Yeah. There was a, um, uh, if I remember, there was a obviously Labour myself, a Conservative candidate, a Liberal Democrat candidate, and there's the UKIP candidate at the time. Yeah. And was your vote to be elected with a fairly big number of votes cast in your favour? I, I was a, a, a clear winner in the first, you know, first preference votes. Yeah. But not clear enough to sort of uh, to win our drive. So we had to have the sort of second preference votes. So there's two rounds basically, and then um, that time I was a uh, not a, not a very, I didn't have a great margin of win, but just enough to get me past the line. So uh, it was not a, not a big majority, it was a very small majority. Okay, well, smaller with the second preference vote, by the way. <laughs> well, you won based on the rules that are in place. So congratulations on that. Now, let's move on to more of your key responsibilities on a day to day basis. You know, I'm sure people are intrigued by this. So if you talk about a typical working day or a typical working week, what does that look like for a police and crime commissioner? What does what does what do you actually do day to day? Well, I mean, I think one of the most important things I've got to do is make sure I understand what is happening in operational policing, the priorities I've set for the chief constable who I employ as the police and crime commissioner of Derbyshire. He or she is delivering on those strategic priorities and the interests I've picked up about what the people of Derbyshire want. So I make sure that I'm regularly, weekly, I am in touch. We have strategic meetings understanding what they're doing, any issues, problems, and then anything I pick up to say, well, look, this is what I'm hearing. Are you dealing with this properly? But without interfering how operationally the chief constable runs police because there's that divide of strategic and operational. Yeah. And because I'm an elected person and I'm the voice of the people of Derbyshire, I have a very important responsibility, and I do this as often as much as I can, to have interaction engagement face-to-face and any other way to understand what the people of Derbyshire are feeling, experiencing good or bad about policing, beauty safety and victim support services. Mm. Because one of the things which I didn't say earlier is that the role of the Police and Crime Commission is more than what the Police Authority Committee had. We've taken our responsibility from about 2014, about a year after, 18 months after the elections of Police and Crime Commissioners the first time, responsibly for commissioning victim support services. So I, I also commission those. So my job is to go out, engage with communities, engage with other stakeholders and strategic partners, listen to what their experiences are, understand how they are being delivered, give positive feedback and reassurance to me that these things are being done, but find new issues and things which are not going well and then feed that back so that we get the, the Derbyshire Constabulary serving the people on the issues that matter to them. So it's a regular meeting. And my role also is about shining a spotlight on other organisations, such as the rest of the criminal justice system for speedy justice, and to sort of shine a spotlight if things are not happening. I don't have any powers over them, but I have the democratic mandate to ask questions. Same of local authorities in terms of their responsibilities of uh, community safety, looking out for the people, and those things that could impact on my role, such as mental health services not providing uh, timely interventions, and then people calling the police. 
which are available 24-7, or it's about how alcohol drug treatment services are providing help to people who are addicted, youth offending services, how they are supporting young people who might get sucked into the criminal justice system and get them out of, out of that cycle of, um, you know, the revolving door of into custody and into trouble and back again. So my my day is spent understanding how policing, community safety and victims forces are being experienced by the people of Derbyshire and doing whatever I can to improve that or strengthen those things that are, that are happening well. And the other bit I have is that I have some national responsibilities. We are policing is not just about doing what's in Derbyshire. We have this uh, responsibility for the uh, mutual aid for national emergencies and disasters or incidences, whether it's terrorists or it's actually some other emergency. Yeah. And so we, I've got to make sure I'm in touch with the national scene and learn, obviously, good practice from other areas and bringing it back to Derbyshire. Arjo, it's a big role, isn't it? There's quite a lot of responsibilities, quite a lot of touch and reference points that you need to kind of stay aware of and on top of. And the one thing that I just want to pick up on that you said, you talked about your role essentially employing the chief constable. Did I understand that correctly? So you as the police and crime commissioner for Derbyshire are responsible for employing and working on a strategy with the chief constable for the actual police force. Yes. I, I, I mean, the old police authority, they, they had the responsibility for appointing the chief consul and the chief officers and then setting the uh, strategic priorities and the policy for policing in Derbyshire. The only change is now that I employ the chief constable. I have a responsibility to set the uh, strategic priorities and um, what I think are they are in my interaction with the public. And then I charge the chief constable to deliver those operationally with a budget which means that that chief constable employs the rest of the policing workforce. I can't interfere in how that operationally is done. I can't directly say, look, I want more police officers in Derby because, you know, you know that's what I think. I can't tell any operational instructions, but I can give them a bigger picture and say, well, can you deal with these uh, issues? If they can't, then I am able to obviously um, terminate their contract and appoint, uh, appoint somebody else. Okay, so for clarity on that point, you work alongside the Chief Constable in setting the strategy and holding the Chief Constable account to that strategy, but you're not involved in the day-to-day operational aspects of yeah. running the I police force. I mean, that was a clear legislative agreement that I cannot interfere on, in operational delivery. We have conversations, I can raise issues, but I can't instruct them to do this, or, you know, put 20, 20 more police officers here or spend more time in this area. I can tell them that there are issues in this area. How are you going to deal with them? But I can't instruct them to, to deploy staff or tell them how to do it operationally. Does we the have chief... a very good relationship. I mean, I, I have to say, I've, 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 uh, I've worked with three chief constables now in my time. Okay. And I've got a very constructive but professional relationship and a challenging one, but we work together to deliver the best service for the people of Derbyshire. Well, that's good to hear. I was just going to ask that question, Hargill. So did you inherit the the current incumbent, the current chief constable, or did you recruit that person? Yeah. yeah. This The current chief constable, uh, Rachel Swan, I appointed last year, August. She was this, She's the second chief constable I've appointed, yeah. and she's the first woman chief constable of Derbyshire Constabulary in history. So, you know, before that, there's all been white males who have been the chief constables in Derbyshire. And um, before that, there was uh, Peter Goodman, who I appointed in 2017, uh, very soon after coming into post, because uh, the previous chief constable, McCreedon, he retired after being, after 10 years of service as a chief constable, one of the longest serving chief constables in, uh, in the country at that time. So does a chief constable serve a particular period of, of time or can they be in position for an indefinite period? Again, that is something that's determined by the police and crime commissioner. Usually a contract is given for something like anything. I can make it as long as I want, really, but normally you'd say, you'd think you want some a chief constable in place for about five to seven years. Yeah. So I, I've always given that that sort of a contract when I've appointed chief constables. However, the, the experience is most chief constables tend to, after four to five years, take retirement. I was going to ask very you... Very few ex- exceptions where they stay longer and you know, for 10 years, but that, that seems to be the sort of time, time period that the chief constables stay. 
I was going to ask you, Harjo, it's my privilege to ask and your prerogative not to answer. So you mentioned you've worked with three. Is that because factors outside of you deciding that they weren't measuring up to their uh, strategy objectives or were there other factors at play? It was not, I can't, I, I, I would not say that in any one of them, it was my decision to say, you can, you need to go. You know, yeah. it's a question of, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of, um, the first uh, chief was retired because he had done a long service, uh, 10, 11 years. We had a very good relationship for the short time period he was here. And he intended to retire. He waited for the elections and then wait about a year. And we worked together to um, plan that. And the second chief constable, uh, for their own personal reason, they decided to go after um, about three years. We were, you know, working very well together. We had a good relationship. And um, I had to accept when um, he asked if he could retire at that time for family reasons, as opposed to anything that, you know, uh, any conflict or issue that we had between ourselves and our working relationship. Now, I've always had a very constructive, professional, uh, but challenging where challenge is required. Uh, with all three chief constables that I've, um, I've employed. Got to ask you, Harjil, on a scale of one to ten, one being low, ten being high, how hard of a taskmaster are you in terms of your ex- the expectations you place? Are you quite strict in, in, in expecting your chief constable to deliver against the strategy that you've set? I am, but I'm, I'm sort of uh, also pragmatic about what they can achieve. So, so maybe I, I could be harder, but I think yeah. this job, achieving strategies and priorities is a very complex business Mm. so i think i'm demanding and challenging in terms of what i expect and the multitude of things i expect to be done because there are so many different facets to policing and community safety Mm. Uh, but i'm also realistic about how difficult it is and i work to push chief constables to get that done uh, without sort of you know getting into a I'm not one of those people who sort of at, a, at whim will sort of um, say, oh, you're not doing the job, go. I want to sort of make sure things can get done and work constructively. Uh-huh. So I am challenging and demanding, but not to the extent of being um, intolerant and um, short-sighted in terms of making decisions. I think the people of Derbyshire, the people that voted you in, Hardio, would probably want you to be making sure that the strategy you've set is being adhered to. So how is um, Rachel Swan, you mentioned, the current Chief Constable, how is she faring? How is she doing? Yeah, I mean, I think she's doing a really good job. I mean, she, she's got a good um, experience and history because um, when she was, the, she's been a deputy of Chief Constable in Derbyshire for about two years before she became the Chief Constable. And in that time, we've had two major emergencies one would call one of them would be a national emergency. Well, both are near to national emergency. One was the uh, the flooding that caused the uh, the uh, the uh, Todbrook uh, Reservoir in yeah. Whaley Bridge, yeah. and that was a national emergency. And she was the lead for the emergency services response from fire, fire rescue, ambulance service, the force, you know, the military forces, local authority contingency teams. She led that that team, and I was side by side with her through that. And she was professional, firm, but very very sensitive to the needs of individuals. And mm-hmm. she she was credited for her, her handling and the leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm and then obviously the, uh, the the flooding situations that more recently and uh, well and now she has been the lead for the local resilient forum around the COVID-19 response mm. in Derbyshire. And those are qualities that made me appoint her in the first place. And she's been in post since August, and we're working really well. And she's, she's open. She's not defensive. She's um, motivational in terms of looking at diversity and uh, actually you know, making uh, the troops do the job and protecting them, you know, not, not sort of exposing them to criticism un- un- unjustly. So uh, the starting is a very positive start. And we are in the process, we're just formulating our budget and our plan for the next year. And we work really constructively together so that we can provide the best service for the people of Derbyshire. Arjil, outside of the Chief Constable of Derbyshire, who, who you appoint and that person reports to you, what other contacts do you have within the Derbyshire Police Force day to day? Or is it just focused through, through the Chief Constable? Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things I try to do, I meet with the Police Federation, I meet with Unison, 
who are the main uh, union that sort of um, supports uh, the welfare of the empl uh, civilian employees in the police force. I want to hear from their perspective, not just from the uh, management, but from their perspective about how the workforce is. And I make sure I understand by visiting the divisional commanders, chief inspectors, specialist units like the rural crime team to understand their experience and understand what they are going through so that you know I'm more informed, not only about the public, what their experiences are, but also about the workforce because their health, mental health being, their efficiency is important to me. And I need to understand that as well, separate to what the chief constable tells me. Yeah, that's good to hear, isn't it? It's like any good chief exec, essentially. Uh, any good chief exec not only has a, a, a line of direct reports in a typical company, as you know, you'd have a finance director and a marketing director and an operations director, and they all report into the um, the chief exec. And what you're saying is, even though your main role is to work with the chief constable, it's important that you hear the perspectives of some of the key influence influential people throughout the rest of the force, so you're getting a proper handle on how the force is operating and not just one voice from from that chief constable good yeah, yeah. i mean the, the danger of just listening to the one, one voice or her or her uh, senior management team would be that they would always tell me they're doing you know good things mm. i need to be able to confirm that and it's really important to understand that you know because in an ivy tower you can be told anything and everything and it can be very convincing mm. words can be convincing but you need to see what actually is happening on the ground. So uh, whether it's in our communities, in terms of how they are receiving policing, or it's the workforce in terms of how they are being supported in delivering a very complex service. Let me just say, Arjil, that I'm a consultant for a living. So as part of that, I work and have worked for some of the largest companies in this country. And I've seen scenarios where the chief exec gets fed information, probably not truly reflective of what's going on on the ground. So I think it's really reassuring for the people of Derbyshire to know that you're actually putting yourself out and about and you are taking on board the opinions of people at working at ground level. So congratulations for that. Moving on to kind of size and resource, how does Derbyshire Police Force compare in both terms of the number of police officers and the resources that we have, the number of police stations and the financial budget aspects? How, how do we compare in Derbyshire to the other forces around the country? We are probably an average police force. Yeah, we're we're sort of um, we're over a million population, and uh, the the yeah an average workforce, and we're about one point two, one point three percent of the population of, uh, of England and Wales. Yeah, so uh, we stand in the middle in terms of um, where we are. There are much larger forces like the Met Metropolitan yeah. Police, West Midlands Police, uh, Greater Manchester, South Yorkshire, uh, West Yorkshire. So we're in the middle, average average numbers. We're at something like 1,800, 1,800, 1,900. I'm hoping to increase that more and more. Uh, workforce police officers and a similar number, probably slightly less, of uh, civilian staff working in policing. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a, still a reasonably large organisation, but in, in the scheme of things, we're within the average police force. And our crime per thousand population is probably better than most. We're about fifth or sixth safest county in the country for crimes per thousand population. Although even one crime is too too many, as far as I'm concerned, to endure for the, for a victim. Mm. Okay, well, congratulations on what sounds like an effective policing structure that you've got in place there. Now, I did read some of the commitments that you made to the pe people of police of Derbyshire in the document that's available for download on your website. And for people that are listening to this podcast, I'll make sure that there's a link to that in the show notes. And that reflects the, the 2016 to 21 period. I appreciate we, we haven't got huge amounts of time today to talk through it in micro detail, but perhaps you could share some of the main commitments that you said you would deliver in that and how you've progressed compared yeah. to them. I mean, the police economy is a structured document. It has all the things that the professional chief constable and police officer and criminal justice system said. So everything that needs to be done for a police force is in this document. Yeah. So it's not just me writing it. I've had the privilege of professionals in this field telling me what is the risk and threat for the people of Derbyshire. Yeah. So they're all covered. We cover the strategic priority requirement in terms of uh, mutual aid to other parts of the country for policing 
or national emergencies and other things, as I said before. And then I've, I've distilled what I think are the most important strategic priorities, and one which I've said to the chief constable and other partners that they need to help serve the people of Derbyshire. And one of the top of those is um, making sure vulnerable victims and communities are protected and supported. So that's where my commissioning and support for victim services, which is a separate role or the crime bit of my police and crime community role, is really important. But the police have got to do their bit. They've got to make sure that they, they not only apprehend, arrest criminals, but the victims are given due care and attention, helped, supported, and referred on to the relevant agencies. And second, uh, I, I want to make sure that people, one of the other things which is massive in terms of the demand on policing is people with mental health and learning disabilities, when they have got nowhere to turn, they they ring the police because the police are available 24-7, like unlike any other service left in a public domain. So, And often the police are not the right individuals to deal with mental health and learning disabilities, and it's a welfare issue. But police are called in an emergency and they have to do their best. And often it's their best is their lay, non-professional intervention. And they can do the, for the right reason, do the wrong things or take the person to the wrong place and not really solve the problem. So it keeps coming back. So one of the things I'm charged myself and the constabulary is to work in partnership with mental health services and the uh, CCGs in Derbyshire to join up the services for people with mental health and learning disabilities so that they get their help at the right place from the right people at the right time rather than having to resort to calling the police for help in an emergency or the public calling the police because they think somebody's either harming themselves or harming others. And the, the, the third one is uh, looking at how young people, um, how, how they are being kept out of the criminal justice system. Yes. Because most young people will end up getting into some sort of trouble when they're young. Most grow out of it. But those who don't, they're a burden to society, to their family and friends, to the criminal justice system and to the police. So I want to make sure I work with the probation service and the youth offending services myself, mm. challenge them to provide better rehabilitation, reoffending, and re- putting people back into their communities but not offend again and the police to work better in, that, in partnership with those groups because we can't arrest our way out of criminality because all the other social problems that people yeah. endure and lead them to criminality and into trouble. And, so, and then the same in terms of um, to do with alcohol or drugs. One out of every six crimes committed is alcohol fueled, particularly violence. Drug Demand for drugs means that serious organized criminals, 95% of them, have some sort of footprint into drug supply. So it's really important that I work in two fronts. One, to make sure that the police are doing their best to arrest those criminals, but we know that they cannot arrest their way out of that because if if they could, they would have done that by now. Because of the societal problems, we need to make sure that treatment services, local public health services who commission alcohol, they provide treatment, rehabilitation, to the best abilities to stop people being addicted and wanting the drugs in the first place. Mm. So that's a really important area. And I also um, uh, am interested in how technology, with the number of police forces and resources going down, apart from, I have to say, since I got elected, since then I've campaigned to get more money, and Mm. we're sort of slowly getting numbers up again, but nowhere near to the numbers we were, say, 10, 12 years ago. But so we need to be more efficient in how we use technology to get the best out of our workforce. So I, I've been working hard to make sure the police officers are equipped with mobile devices, technology, information, data at their fingertips, rather than having to use computers and going to police stations or phoning somebody else for somebody's uh, insurance details, like they had to do, or ask people to produce papers in police stations. They now can have a device which tells them they can get that information immediately and more information. So technology is important to make sure we get the best, most efficient response to the people of Derbyshire. And then, of course, one of the most important principles of policing is to say the people are the police and the police are the people. We police by consent in this country, and you can you're more likely to get trust cooperation from the public if they feel that they can relate to you. Mm. So that means for me 
that the police are reflective of their community's diversity, whether it be the geography of the county, the, uh, the you know, the deaf ethnicity, the diversity in terms of different people. If they can relate themselves, they are more likely to cooperate because without cooperation, we can't have policing. So I'm really working to get the diversity of our workforce to reflect the diversity of our community and also to make sure that we can connect with all our different neighbourhoods in Derbyshire. And on that point, I, I didn't want to just stick with that. I want to keep going out to the people of Derbyshire and say, what is it that you or experiences are? So I've visited every town, village and neighbourhood at least once in my term. That's 383 different sort of events to check out what they are feeling. And one of the things they told me, and I've made this a new priority for myself, is not written, it's in, the, it's in my document, but it's not, so large, and I will update it in the next plan I make if I'm still here elected as a police and crime commissioner. And that is, they want more focus on speeding and road safety. They they are more interested in antisocial behaviour being tackled, lower level crime, yeah. and they are wanting more visibility of police. Okay. And I have made it a priority that despite all the risk and threats that the professionals tell me they have to respond to and the money is needed for, I want them also to reassure the public by focusing on speeding, antisocial behaviour, and more reassurance, reassurance through visibility. And that is a, something that we just called Operation Derbyshire. That is something that I charged the Chief Constable to reinvigorate, reboot, uh, since she's been uh, appointed as Chief Constable. A couple of things I'd love to pick up on there. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is preventative tactics, let's call it. So if we zoom in on crime and when children start to commit crime, there is a, a charitable organisation in the UK called the Dotcoms Children Foundation. You may or may not be aware of them, but they've worked with... Wait, a, what was that, David? They're called the Dotcoms Children Foundation, and they actually work with police forces around the UK. Yeah. Um, a lady called Sharon Doughty is the chief exec. Yeah. And actually, they've created a brilliant programme. They are a charity, a brilliant programme that actually works with children in the 6 to 10 age group. And it actually teaches them something that I don't believe gets taught in schools, which is values. And they have a program called Values Versus Violence. And they're very, very clever uh, workbooks that allow a child to express how they're feeling so the teachers and the parents can spot uh, the emergence of values. They can see worrying signs. And I love tactics, Harjil, that, that kind of prevent by instilling values, the right values into people. And I think schools are key and the education system is a key part of that because, of course, not every child is blessed with parents that necessarily are able to steer the child in the right way and to help set those values. And so it's it's great to hear that that's the, the type of work that you're looking at as well, preventative tactics. And I know that you have a small fund, don't you, that you're able to allocate from each year to to causes particularly that involve uh, young, young people. How much satisfaction do you get from the fact that you're able to do that? I mean, I think that's that's a really good question, and I think I'd be interested in the organisation you talked about. I'll introduce many, you. I'll introduce you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are many organisations that are, have spent a lot of time trying to prevent people getting into trouble in the first place, and the policing responsibility is also part of that to actually help. You know, the original remit for policing was not just about catching criminals and arresting them, it was actually preventing crime in the first place. And I think prevention is something that's been neglected over the last 10, 12 years, when there's been less and less money for policing and for public services, people always tend to cut back on something that takes time to actually make an impact. Prevention is something that, you know, you, you have to understand what's happening early, put things in place so that, and you won't know how well you've done that until much later. So when you've got less money and urgency, you do the, the things that you shouldn't do. You stop doing the things that can make a longer-term impact to, to doing immediate things to respond. So prevention is really important. And the vulnerability fund, which I've called this, I've called it the community action fund before, but now because of COVID-19, this year I've called it the vulnerability fund because there are more vulnerable people out there. Yeah. And I'm encouraging organizations like the one you mentioned, and other community groups to come up with innovative ideas of how they can help prevent crime, stop crime, and protect the vulnerable communities. And that's really important. Mm. But you, you've touched on something which is also important. Adverse childhood experiences. 
they are something that a lot of organizations started thinking back to looking at again. Because like you said, some, some signs of the experiences which are going to have a negative impact on young children are happening in those that age range that you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. And if you can pick up some of the signs early, you can try to help support those children early before the impact of those experiences makes them too far gone to be helped so easily and they end up getting into trouble with the law and other 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 uh, other authorities yeah. so that's really important prevention is really important and more and more i'm looking to see how i can get into that space but i have to balance making sure i fund the police to do their policing job properly but also in my iron crime bit which is money i get from the ministry of justice by the way which is different to the police authority it's over a million pounds now an annual almost called a victim surcharge yeah. When people commit a crime, they get a penalty, financial penalty imposed, and that's allocated to police and crime commissioners to commission victim support services and initiatives like uh, prevention initiatives like the one you mentioned. Yeah, just a su- superb intelligence, I believe, in actually starting to try and influence children in the right way with a very balanced program in that six to six to ten. And 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 as you said, and what I love about the Dot Coms Children Foundation is that their entire platform is based around being able to spot worrying trends, worrying signs, something that that child. And as I mentioned, that they're they're already working with a number of police forces and have lots of children have gone through that. The other thing you picked on as well, Arjo, which I think is really something else that I'm passionate about, and, and that is mental health. The world has around 280 million people declared that suffer from either depression or anxiety. And an, around about 10% of the UK population have a have a mental health issue, usually linked to depression or anxiety. And it's fascinating to hear you say that, you know, a lot of the police end up being the first line to deal with, with, with some of that. So once again, you know, I think there's an opportunity for organisations like Elastic FM to work with the likes of yourself and Derbyshire Police Post really just to be a platform uh, to get out that message. And, you know, one thing that I'll say to you now that we'd be delighted to do, you, you mentioned about one of the things that people of Derbyshire are asking for is visibility. You're talking now to the boy that lived in a police house for two years in Clown on Rotherham Road, where we had a little phone on the wall and a little office by the side of the house. And we had what's known as the Beat Bobby. Um, And now I know the Beat Bobbies are still out there, but they're not as visible. But what's interesting, Harjil, is nowadays people are just addicted to social media, as you know. It's not necessarily a good thing, but they hang out on Instagram, on YouTube, on Facebook. So there is an opportunity with agreement of your chief exec, there is an opportunity for some of your officers to take part in, let's call them micro podcasts, micro interviews, and for that to be distributed via the multiple community Facebook groups that are out there so that people are still seeing the visibility of that of the police but they're seeing it in a digital way uh, and not necessarily because people aren't walking the streets like they used to because they're sat at home scrolling through their their uh, their smartphone and i think we all suffer from that so i've uh, you probably sense i've really got animated by some of the things you just said because it's great to to hear that your role and your own values and philosophy and plans reach into those those important areas. Now, you mentioned earlier on about performance. You mentioned that, that Derbyshire was about the fifth or the sixth in terms of the best for low crime rate. How do we compare in, in other areas? So if we're looking to compare Derbyshire Police Force and the efficiency, how do people check that out? And, and how are we performing in that regard? We, one of the things that happens there is the independent inspections that happen at policing. Yeah. So we got the uh, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of um, uh, uh, Constabulary and Fire Rescue Service now because um, there's more and more information to look at the fire rescue service of police as a one, one, two of the three emergency services, the blue light services, and see how they join up better. So that's there's a HMICRFRIS uh, inspection schedule that happens with every police force, and the current one is focused on what's called Peel which is P-E-E-L, yeah. Police Efficiency, Effectiveness and Legitimacy. Okay. So their criteria that are used by inspectors to come in and inspect police forces on a schedule, obviously this last year with the COVID-19 has been a bit compromised in terms of how that can be done. But So that, that, is a, that is a standard of actually understanding 
what is the how effective is your police force? So um, I mentioned crime. In terms of financial efficiency and probity, um, over a number of years, those inspection persons have given Derbyshire a, a green light in terms of being efficient and effective in how they use their finances. Hmm. And, uh, and most things, and serious organised crime, for example, they've always come up very well in terms of tackling serious organised criminality, yeah. not just in Derbyshire, but in, in partnership with our region, the East yeah. Midlands region. Yeah. We've got one of the best um, uh, uh, regional uh, uh, organised crime units, collaborative units in the country. It's a model that's been looked at across the country. So generally speaking, we've been done well. Sometimes, you know, there, there are inspect- inspections are good because it does tell you where the weaknesses are. So, you know, we've had focus on some of the domestic abuse services, which will always be very good, but there's something about how much more we can reach out. So that, that is something that I picked up on. And one of the things I've done is I've commissioned services for our rural communities because most people think domestic abuse only happens in big urban areas. Yeah. But my assumption has always been that it happens anywhere. There's no there's no boundary around social class or economic status or geography. So I commissioned a piece of work to understand that and that conclude confirm what my assumption. So I've spent more time trying to make sure domestic abuse services are not only effectively available for people in urban areas, but in our rural communities and our villages in Derbyshire. So I'm working with an organization to get that message out, to give confidence to those people, to report their, their abuse and get that better. So the peel process the is a is a way to actually get an understanding of what's happening, in addition to me going out and doing the bit I do, mm. listening to the workforce in terms of what they need, listening to the public. And I also have a my own independent custody volunteer service. So volunteers who go into our custody suites to make sure that despite the pe- you know people having committed crimes or got into trouble or causing trouble to others, they are still dealt um, looked after and dealt with with dignity and humaneness in in how they treat yeah. about peace. So we have independent visitors who go in to check and when any any issue that come up, I use that to share with the chief constable so that we can improve the working conditions of the custody staff, but also make sure that the the prisoners held by them are treated with humaneness and dignity despite the fact that they may have done something wrong. So there are volunteers that actually go in, so the term custody obviously means when people are arrested, they're kind of checked in, aren't they, and then placed into a cell pending uh, interviewing and and investigation and charging, etc. So what you're saying, Harjil, is there there are volunteers that are actually in that custody suite and that are just literally observing how the police treat people who have been arrested and to make sure that's done in a humane way. Yeah, yeah. and they they will talk, they will... um identify people to talk to as well, those those um, people who are in custody, to ask them directly what, what their experience is and do it against a checklist of what they should be getting and what they are getting and make sure that it's happening the way it should be. Yes. Of the current Police and Crime Commissioner role and mandate, what do you feel works best? Which aspects you know, they, of the role do you think really work well? Yeah. I mean, when, when they first came into, I was, I mean, I've been on the police authority, the, the old committee structure for 10 years. So I've got 10 years experience of being a member of the uh, Derbyshire Police Authority, the committee structure beforehand. So, I mean, I wasn't too keen when the police and crime commission first came into being because, uh, well, I, I, I didn't pay much attention, but I thought, why, why change something? Having done the job as a deputy police and crime commissioner first, and now as the police and crime commissioner, I've been able to see that the, the, the process of making decisions is quicker. I am more, because I'm full time, I'm more able to go out and engage with the workforce and with the public to understand what they are experiencing and to check out whether what I'm told and the policies I sign off are being delivered in the way I want them to, as opposed to just being told about it. So it's, it's a nimbler process. If decisions need to be made, they can be made quicker and somebody can be accounted for 
easily to say who is the person you have to sort of hold to account if they go wrong. So that is that's been a positive. And when I was a, on the committee, you'd go into your meetings, you'd be there for three or four hours, you'd probably have political debates and uh, ding-dongs, and um, you know, and the chief boss will sit back and let the politicians argue there and then get on with the business. But I can now get under the, under the skin of the police and the chief constable yeah. to understand things better because I'm doing it 24-7. You know, I'm not just doing it for those three or four hour committee meetings or subcommittee meetings in a formalized structure, listening to policies, listening to statements, and then getting not as much time as I do now in that role of going out and seeing whether they're working or not. Yeah. So that, that's that's been a really important thing. And the chief constable were, were, were a bit wary of this new structure, think, thinking that individuals, individual can be rogue and go, go all over the place and um, God knows God knows what they will do with policing. But they've slowly come to understand that the relationship can work very constructively for them as well. Because if they want to be done, they can do it quicker rather than having to wait for a committee meeting and a whole process. Uh, so that nimbleness. Yeah. And more public accountability is something that's uh, different, probably harder, but more positive, I think, for the people of Derbyshire. Yeah, so I guess in a nutshell, what you're saying is the fact that you're immersed in the role full-time and there is an extreme laser focus versus the old way of doing things, it was just clearly inefficient, whereas this has got that focus that's needed. So that's the positives, Harjil. What are the biggest challenges? I appreciate that COVID-19 has created massive challenges for all service sectors in the UK. But if you think about the role generally, what what are the biggest headaches? What are the things that frustrate you the most? One of the biggest is about uh, making sure I can get the right funding to deliver all the things I want to deliver. So, you know, the police force, not just in Derbyshire, right across the country, before 2017, I would say for 10 years or so, they were really under the cosh. They were being asked to do more and more, but the number, the funding for them was going down and down. So, for example, in Derbyshire, we had 2,100 police officers in, uh, I think, 2008-9. In 2015-16, there was only... Uh, 1,000, just under 1,800. We lost, I think, about 1,700 something. We lost something like 400 odd police officers, more than 300 police staff, and that meant the challenge of getting the work done was harder. I could ask for things to be done, but they could only be the thin blue line could only do so much. Yes. And so the biggest challenge has been to turn around that downward decline of funding and resource of policing, and to turn it up and then convince government that they should be doing it through government grant, which is like 60% of the funding we get for policing in Derbyshire is through government police grant. Yeah. The other I have to raise through council tax police. And until three years ago, we were capped on how much we could raise for council tax police up to 2%. And there was no money really coming in from central government for funding policing. So I've been that's been the biggest campaign that I've worked on to turn that round, continue to not put it on council tax payers, but to get it from grant. But when given the choice to get more money, I've taken those choices. Mm-hmm. And I'm pleased to say that the people of Derbyshire so far has been supportive of that in terms of saying, yes, they want more money for policing and more police officers. So that, that's the biggest challenge, I think. It's a complex environment. Everything's not in the control of the police or myself, because I'm dependent on other agencies of the criminal justice system. I'm dependent on local authorities, mental health services, youth offending, probation services. I work in partnership with them, but I can't direct or control them. So it's a, that's the challenge of making sure partnership, joined up, collaborative working yeah. is most effective and efficient for the people of Derbyshire. Yeah, collaboration and influence are the key words there, aren't there, as opposed to having the opportunity to control and, di- and dictate. So then if a resident of Derbyshire is listening to this interview and has some appropriate feedback or ideas that they want to share about the structure of the Derbyshire Police Force, how can they present that feedback in a way that it actually gets yeah. through to you? Yeah, well, one thing I do, I mean, one of the things I did say, I go out to the people. I did a tour, my urban, suburban, or rural tour of Derbyshire, I called it. Yeah. When I went, I might visit 383 towns, villages, and neighborhoods yeah. to listen and invite people to come to me to tell me what they think that their experience is good or bad about policing and community safety. I also have a regular survey, which is a listening to you survey that goes out 
uh, you know, try to increase the number of people who fill that in online. Yeah. Or yeah. when we go out, I have engagement officers who go, I go with them. We stand on um, street corners, major public spaces, employer, employers, venues. We go to them if we work, people are working and they can't come to us to get their view through the survey, what they think about their experience of crime, community safety, vulnerability, their issues. And, you know, and, and then they can contact me directly. I've got a website where people can see what issues I'm, uh, I'm focusing on and they, and they can uh, use that to give me information. I'm always ready to be contacted and attend any public meeting or a parish council or a neighborhood watch meeting or some group like over 50s groups, uh, you know, any group and any, uh, my, my job is to go out, respond and listen to any neighborhood, any community organization, any individual to get a better feel of what is happening well and what is happening badly. Just on on the theme of COVID-19 and obviously the fact that public gatherings aren't allowed right now, um, obviously that that's probably hindered your ability to do what you love to do, which is to get out and see the people of Derbyshire face-to-face. How open are you to the concept of potentially doing, let's call them Facebook Lives, in control groups? Um, the advantage of that, of course, is that they can be moderated. So in a group, if you've got a credible group that's got strong moderators, an interview like this could take place live, but with people asking questions in the comments that can literally be taken. Is that something that in the future, depending on upon how the vaccine works and hopefully one day we'll be able to meet in a congregation again but you open yeah. to things like that as well yeah i am i am definitely i'm open to the now i mean i have i have spent a lot of time joining a parish council meeting but now that they've got <laughs> technology being set up for all sorts of meetings i will join remotely yeah to a parish council meeting i've done that i've done a number of those yeah I've done a neighborhood watch or, or a particular issue. You know, I'm more than happy to, if somebody else wants to organize it, I will, you know, more more than willing to do that. Uh, you know, and I've, I've done a number already um, and I will continue to do that. I'm trying to find even a way of meeting individuals. I had a local councillor contact me and say, you need to come down to see what the issues are in my in my neighborhood. And I couldn't do that at the moment. But I said, okay, we'll, we'll, we can talk remotely yeah. and have that conversation but and as soon as the lockdown finishes i'll come down and look at it physically as well and that really helped I think with the right platform, Harjul, there'd be a lot of interest from certain aspects of the community certain components of the community to take part in some of the more respectable Facebook groups that are out there that have been set up by communities and that are strictly moderated yeah. Yeah. to have you as a guest on there being interviewed but also for people to be able to ask questions in the comments I think that would re- work really well and the great thing about that is it's incredibly measurable for you as well so you know you could have members of your team monitoring that and taking down and then giving you feedback afterwards I'm going to ask you I've been really grateful for your time today Harjil it's been superb to get into such an in-depth discussion around your role and the role of a police and crime commissioner and I'd like to congratulate you on some of the work that you've done because I think uh, listening to you and and the depth in which you're going to and how you're reaching out to different aspects of the community is commendable. Now, there are elections that are due to take place. Uh, I guess the first question is, are you you're going to stand for re-election? I, I sense that from an earlier comment. Yes, I will be standing, yes. I, I will be a candidate, yes. Obviously, COVID-19 is just completely dominating everything at the moment. Have you only got any flavour for when these elections might take place? I mean, the government have made statements that they are wanting to have them in May, this May. But I suspect that they will be watching to see how the coronavirus is being controlled and what we are in the position to do. So the intention at the moment is May. But I would not be surprised if in March, when they view what the situation about coronavirus is and how well we're controlling it and how, how much relaxation of the lockdown they want to make, they may reconsider. So as they did last year, you know, it was at the last minute the election was going to go ahead and the last minute they were deferred to this year. So I suspect if they don't go ahead in May, which is what the intention is at the moment, they might be put back a few months because democracy is still required, I think, in, 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 to, to continue in this role. And they might be put back to uh, just after the summer. You know, um, That's the only option. Otherwise, I think they will go ahead in May. 
Okay. So the final question for you then, and I'll let you enjoy the rest of your busy day, is that you've got an opportunity now to say to the people of Derbyshire, thinking about the next election for police and the Police and Crime Commissioner role for Derbyshire, what is your message to them? Why should they vote for you? Why should they re-elect you? First of all, I would say register to vote anyway, irrespective of who you want to vote for. It's really important that democracy is used properly by the people of Derbyshire. Secondly, I would say that I, my experience, 30 years in the criminal justice system, stands me in good stead to be a professional, constructive police and crime commissioner. That being a deputy for uh, nearly four years and then the five years of experience of being a police and crime commissioner and leading through three chief constables, an efficient, effective workforce, meeting the priorities of the people of Derbyshire and the strategic issues that I've already worked on and people are working with me are mental health, young people, alcohol, drugs, making sure the technology and the resource are best effective. And the most important thing is that I have been out there engaging with you, listening to you, using that to inform what I do. And one of the things I've done is I've listened and I've done. So when you said more focus on speeding and road safety, more focus on antisocial behavior, more police officers and more visibility, those are the areas that I've charged the chief constable to start focusing on with the money that you have given has, or through the council tax precept. And I've delivered on my commitment to get more funding for policing in Derbyshire and increase our numbers of police. We started doing that in the last two or three years. The effects of those are coming through now because it takes time to recruit, train, and uh, get people, police officers, working effectively. And I will continue to do that if I'm re-elected. Well, whatever the outcome, Harjil, I'd like to thank you for your service to the people of Derbyshire. And if you are re-elected, we'd be delighted to continue to give you a platform to share your work on a regular basis and uh, to help you reach out to the people in northeast Derbyshire, which is which is our footprint area. Thank yeah, you. Great. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, more than happy to set up any uh, Facebook events you want us to do. That was the voice of Harjil Dinza, Police and Crime Commissioner for Derbyshire. Please subscribe to this podcast and we promise to keep you up to date with important public service work in the county of Derbyshire. If you are keen to further research some of the subjects that were discussed on today's podcast, I've added links to the Commissioner's Facebook page and website in the show notes. So until next time, you've been listening to David Lilly, your host for the Derbyshire Talks podcast in association with Elastic FM Community Media. Supporting your local community. We are Elastic FM.